Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and as I say pretty much each week, it's my privilege to be able to share out of Scripture uh, to you, uh, and we have specifically been working through the book of Genesis. Now, uh, you can open your Bibles, actually, to the book of Genesis, chapter 4. Uh, I just want to take a step back from that just for a second uh, and make uh, a bit of a plug. As we've been progressively opening uh, through this COVID process, uh, the restrictions that we have actually are based on social distancing. And so we ask that you do your best to respect uh, your neighbors and to distance the best that you possibly can. Uh, we've put out uh, more than enough chairs to make that happen. One of the challenges, though, that we have in order to continue to progress forward is actually service-oriented. We need people to, to be able to serve in the children's ministries, to work in the tech section, because in the tech side of things, we're now running the live service and the online service all simultaneously. And so you've got people at the back here and you've got people in the back uh, and so we need volunteers for children's ministries, and we need volunteers for tech. Uh, with the tech side of things, you do actually need to be tech techy, right? There's certain pieces of the tech stuff that we actually just can't teach you. We can't teach you to hear music a certain way, right? Like if you're tone deaf, you're tone deaf, you're probably not a good sound person, uh, right? So, so there is aspects of that that we have to sift through. Uh, but you've, you can put your name forward and we can give it, a, give it a try and see how it goes. You also have to be able to use a computer uh, very well. Uh, and so it's not you know, just like, well, I know how to turn one on. Uh, and you specifically need to be well-versed in the world of Apple, which if you're not, I would say it's somewhat demonic. But uh, if you are, then you're blessed by God and you can come and work with us with the Apple computers in the back. Now I'm blowing heresy, aren't I? All right, so we, just, we need help. So you can contact Pastor Tamil at tamil at evergreen.org. You can contact our daycare director, Carrie, uh, at evergreenheights.org. Uh, she takes care of the children's ministry area, uh, of all things. And then the tech, we can sift through me and, and Tamil. So I just wanted to make that uh, a plug out there. We do have uh, in the area of about 35 kids here today that aren't in the sanctuary with us. And so we have to, through Plan to Protect, have a certain amount of volunteers in the back. And I keep having to wake up my teenagers and drag them in early to get them to help in the children's ministry area. So for Tate's sake, he would also love you to volunteer. All right, so last week, we, we were introduced to the birth of death. The birth of, of death and shame uh, as our new human reality. This is the first time in the Genesis narrative, in Genesis chapter 3, we're not very far into the Bible, are we? that we have this new reality happen for humanity. All because, like I said last week, we believed in one simple lie. This, this simple lie was just this. You will certainly not die. If you eat this apple, if you partake in this tree, you will certainly not die. God, God's been holding back from you the truth about your potential. That's, that's what the serpent is saying here. Like, he's holding something back from you. Don't you want to know what God knows? This is the great lie that I really actually think many of us even go about living our lives through even today. 
That, that somehow we live our lives maybe believing, but still living in such a way that we think we're bigger than God. That, that, that somehow we need to provide for ourselves rather than trust in the creator of the heavens and the earth. Trust that he will provide for us, that he will guide us by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. Instead, as humanity, we believe the lie that evil gives us that we are actually in control of those things. Now, in today's passage, we're going to begin to see the results of what living and believing the lies of the evil one look like in our lives. And so Adam and Eve are sent east of the garden. They're they're full of shame with no access to the tree of life. Now, how many people have actually, I got to chew my candy. Never go up when you public speak with a big candy in your mouth. All right. Join me. All right. How many people have read chapter four of the book of Genesis? Just put up your hand. I'm not going to shame you if you haven't. It's okay, right? Chapter four in the Genesis narrative. I don't know about you, but it it causes me more questions than what it possibly answers. Like, Like who came up with the idea of offering sacrifices? Because if you, if you read the text slowly, and I beg you, read the Bible slowly, not quickly. Don't like check off a box like I, I did my three chapters for the day as fast as possible with my coffee in my hand. Like take your time, ingest it and digest it, like work through it uh, very slowly because there's interesting things happening here that we often miss when we're just grazing past things. Who came up with offering sacrifices in the first place? At this point in Genesis chapter 4, there is no record of God ever calling for sacrificial uh, process. There's no instructions from Genesis chapter 3 to chapter 4 instructing any form of sacrifice that needs to be made to God. We simply go from banishment to making babies. That, that's, the way, that's where the text goes, right? To banishment and making babies, to offer sacrifices to the Lord. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Many of us, because we read the text through Old Testament, uh, other Old Testament books, we miss this peculiar challenge. You see, we assume that Cain and Abel are just functioning under Levitical law but the book of Leviticus has not been written yet. So it's interesting when we're reading the book of Genesis, how we insert other readings into it, but historically it's proven that those books had not been implemented. They had not been. So what is happening here? We can't read Leviticus into Genesis. It's what we do, but what it does is, is it messes with our interpretive process of how we go about reading the text. We assume that Cain and Abel are just functioning under Levitical law, but Levitical law doesn't exist. Or why, have you ever asked this question, like, why does God accept Abel's offering as good, but not Cain's? Now, don't think of the law yet. 
Because that's how we tend to answer that, right? Oh, well, when you go to the book of Leviticus, that's what's happening here. And so, no, you, you just can't read it that way, folks. That's not how the text reads. So why does he accept Abel's and not Cain's? Why does God accept Abel's offering as good and Cain's offering as not good if we can't insert Levitical law into this equation yet? Now, don't think of this law. I'm going to stress this throughout this whole sermon. Stop thinking of Leviticus, because I know you all have read Leviticus intensely. Why does God accept Abel's offering as good, but not Cain's? Have you ever thought about the section in the chapter 4 where God actually meets with Cain? He has a really interesting, intriguing conversation with Cain. And he's offering uh, really good advice to Cain. Do, do you remember that section where he, he's talking to him after he's refused his offering? and Cain's really upset. God actually gives him advice. And it's super interesting because I don't know how many of you, if you like met God in person and he began to give you advice, would you receive it or would you deny it? That's actually a really interesting question. Cain, he, he doesn't do what God tells him to do. He completely ignores it. And I actually think that many of us in, fallen, in our fallen nature would do that. So we're going to take a look at that. Now, have you ever asked yourself, like, why does Cain get so angry? Like, you're really in a bad place when you get to the point where you are so angry that you are willing to kill. Right? Right? You're really not in a good place if, if your anger is taking you to that place where you are willing to kill, and not just kill, but kill your sibling. And then have you ever asked the question, like, why does God put a mark on Cain and where on earth? This is a good question. After Cain is sent away, eastwardly, remember I talked about that? After he's sent away, where on earth does this wife come from? Have you ever asked that question? Like, what, she just like magically appears. And not only does this wife like magically appear, but isn't there just like four people on the planet according to the book of Genesis? Because that's all the text actually gives us. If we're relying solely on the chapter that we're reading, that's the only information that we have. And not only that, does he find a wife, but he says that he builds a city. What is going on here? He's building a city with a wife that we never even knew existed in the first place. Where did all these people come from? You ever ask these questions as you're reading chapter 4? There's so many questions that chapter 4 brings us. It's crazy. There's more questions than there is answers in the text. And some of these questions I'm going to help answer for you this morning, and some we just don't have time for. I wish that we were doing a separate study, but I ha there is answers to all of these questions. Some may not be willing to receive them because you spent too much time in Sunday school, or you're not reading the text closely, but there is actual answers to all of these questions. So I want to encourage you, though, to take a deeper dive into the book of Genesis. It's a really taken-for-granted book, a very misused book in the Christian church. So take a deeper dive. But what I'm going to ask you to do, though, is to put your critical thinking glasses on while you're taking that deeper dive. Now, one thing I want to explain about critical thinking is 
In critical thinking, to properly think critically, you have to learn to strip away your presuppositions. So you have to become incredibly self-aware to actually truly think critically. Because often when we put our critical thinking glasses on, we're just putting our critical glasses on. And there's actually a big difference between critical thinking and just being critical. And often just being critical is driven by our presuppositions of what we already think the text is saying and us trying to prove that it says what we think. And so when I say put your critical thinking glasses on, what I'm saying is you also need to ask God to make you incredibly self-aware of how you think and what drives your thinking. In theology, we just simply call that our presuppositions. What are the things that we bring into the text that aren't actually in the text? We have to learn to strip those things away. See, it's a little bit more than just checking off a box. Yep, read it. Good to go. I know it all. So I'm asking you to begin to do that. Now, I want to back up a little bit. Before we get into this text, I want to I want to simplify things, and I think that the best way to do that is for us to actually start with Jesus and then kind of work our way back and then work our way forward again back to Jesus. So that's kind of the pattern that we're going to use today. There's a passage in Matthew's gospel that's actually going to help us quite a bit with a lot of the questions that, uh, that the Cain and Abel story brings up. Now, I need you to keep in mind before we read this passage, get this into your mind, who Jesus is talking to when he says these words. He's talking to people who love the scriptures. He's talking to people who are extremely well-versed in the scriptures, meaning they've memorized it word for word. They know it. It's burned into their minds. He's talking to people who teach the scriptures. He's talking to teachers and scholars. He's talking to everyday Jewish people who in their school system know the scriptures very well. So with that in mind, listen to what Jesus says. So it's within the calling of Matthew. And Jesus is gaining a lot of criticism because Jesus is willing to hang out with tax collectors to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And in a religious world, eating with tax collectors and sinners, well, there's just no way that a rabbi would ever do that. And so Jesus, in verse 12, it says, on hearing this, so he's hearing the murmuring and the questions that they're asking, he says, it's not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. Now listen to what Jesus says. Listen very carefully to this. He's speaking to the scribes. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, but go and learn what this means. Hmm. So this is a response, right, to the criticism. Go and learn what this means. And now he's going to quote Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's jump over to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says this, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hmm. This is the Old Testament, right? The one with Leviticus, the one that lays out the whole sacrificial law. And here is the prophet saying, for 
For God desires mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, the Hebrew word, there's some stuff going on here. The Hebrew word translated as mercy is hesed. I think that's how it's pronounced. I, I know Greek, not Hebrew, so I'm a little bit out of my element here. Hesed, which literally means love. But, but it's, the, it's actually the Hebrew word that would be equivalent to the Greek word for agape kind of love. Unconditional love, not sacrifice. That is what God's looking for, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So wait a minute here. Jesus says this to the ones who literally teach the rules and regulations around the sacrificial system. Hasn't God always wanted his people to sacrifice for him? Isn't that what we just have always been taught? Well, the simple answer is actually no, not at all. Not at all. What Jesus is communicating is what God has always wanted for us. For us to know that he is with us and for us to know how to live in his presence and to live with him present in every moment of our lives. He never says, I desire you to sacrifice. So that seems strange, doesn't it? Because if you read your Old Testament, sacrifice seems to be the only way to be made right with God. So what on earth is going on here? What if I told you, just throwing this out there, that God's desire for us has never been a religious system that we get really good at following or we suck at following? What if I told you that that's actually not how God gauges our relationship with him at all, that instead he just wants to simply be with us, for us to center our lives in him? Isn't that how Genesis 1 and 2 read? So we, we got to look at Genesis 1 and 2 to go like, what is it that God actually really wants? And then Genesis 3, notice the shift of what human beings then begin to do. And does it line up with what God wants compared to what we're doing? Because this is how God created things. He placed us in the garden with everything we possibly needed. And he walked with us and he communed with us. We lived in God's presence. And the Bible actually ends exactly the same way. So we see this redemptive movement that's happening in the text as we move along, as we get further into Genesis, then Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We see this progressive movement to returning back to God's original intent of complete harmony and communion. Yeah. And commune with the Lord. Now, there's actually, believe it or not, a special theological term for what I'm talking about. It's called the principle of accommodation. It's interesting because this is not a debated concept by scholars. Both conservative, liberal, all different bends of denominations uh, all believe in the principle of accommodation in both the Old and the New Testament. It's actually just your kind of like average church-going Christians that just completely ignore it. 
The problem is, is it completely transforms the way that you read the scriptures. And it's especially obvious in Genesis chapter 4. So quickly, before we get into the text itself, I'd like to kind of dig in uh, for you this kind of concept of the principle of accommodation. Uh, Like I said, it's widely uh, accepted as a common biblical understanding, especially by Old Testament scholars. And it simply means this, that throughout Scripture, God accommodates certain human decisions or desires in order to meet us where we're at and to move us toward him. In other words, God accommodates us by allowing us to do something he doesn't actually want us to do with the intent that he'll be able to redirect us back into his will over time. See, this is, this is where things get a little bit challenging because we love to quote the Old Testament as like, this is what God wants. But you have to be reading it very closely to actually see, is it what God actually wants or is God accommodating human sinfulness and using that accommodation to move us back into his presence and his will? Okay, I'm going to give you a really simple example. If you jump into the middle of the Bible somewhere, especially the Old Testament, and you start reading, you're probably going to come to a very quick assumption that God is really into kings. Right? God God really seems to like kings. He's really into kings and kingship. You know, he 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 probably likes the crown. So much so that he actually appoints them and and guides them and uses them to influence people. It must be kingship, must be God's system of choice. If you jump into the Old Testament midway through, that's exactly what you would begin to see. But if you're reading the text very carefully and you're reading the whole Bible, not just chunks of the Bible, if you turn back to a book called 1 Samuel, you might actually find out something very different. You see, during the era of the judges, there's a book called Judges, so it'd be good to like jump into that, start there and read forward. God was the king of Israel during the reign of the judges. And this guy named Samuel was a prophet and God was the king over all things. But the people, you'll see in the story, if you go to 1 Samuel, the people grow frustrated with this setup, and so they go to Samuel, the prophet, and they ask for him to appoint a king like all the other nations. God, and you can go and read this, just read 1 Samuel, God specifically specifically tells Samuel, this is a really bad idea. The people having a king other than me a worldly king, a king like all the other nations, this is a bad idea. So much so that God's actually like kind of offended by the people rejecting him as king. And when you read this text, if you, if you go into that text and then read the rest of the Bible with that context, it becomes very obvious that God's will for the people is not for us to have a human kingship. That it's not God's will at all all. Yet, through Samuel, God actually gives the people what they wanted. 
This is, this is very important to understand. This is accommodation. I don't like it. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's what's best for you guys, but you're going to do it anyway. It's kind of like parenting teenagers. And so what I'm going to do in the midst of it is I'm going to give you the king that you want. You see, instead of convincing us sin-filled humans differently, God chooses to appoint the human king to accommodate our ask, to accommodate what we want, and then he begins to work through the king in order to point the people back to him. This is the concept of accommodation. So the principle of accommodation is God entering into where we are and using it to redeem us rather than reject us. He's often, folks, trying to mitigate the harm that our poor decisions cause us. Very much shifts how you read the text. We see this principle, folks, saturated throughout the Bible, and it's actually not a debatable concept. Scholars agree God accommodates human sinfulness at times, in order to break into it and begin to move us back into his will. So sometimes we're quoting the Old Testament text and we're actually quoting something that God doesn't want. And we're saying, because the Bible says so, that it just must be true. Read it carefully. This is exactly, folks, what's happening in Genesis chapter 4. Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. i got to get moving. i got four minutes left to unpack this whole chapter. I'm really trying to contain myself. Accommodation is actually like a mind-blowing thing. It changes so much in how you read the text. So start to read it that way and come talk to me sometime. Uh, Listen to what it says in Genesis uh, 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, because that's what you do after sin. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. (laughs) Listen to what she says. This is so funny, especially if you're reading it in the Hebrew, which I'm going to help us with in a second. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Has anyone birthed a man? (laughs) Right? I mean, you're birthing a male, or what? I'm not even going to get into that. But like, that's weird, weird, weird language. So right away, we've got something going on that's really strange. And the Hebrew is even stranger. They fixed it a little bit in the English text. The Hebrew version of this verse is actually something interpreters have really, really struggled with. Like there is like full books this thick just written about this verse. Okay? And, and so the Hebrew version literally reads like this. I have brought forth a man with Yahweh. Or, so in the literal world, there's always options. It could also read like this. I have brought forth a man that is Yahweh. That's weird, isn't it? Like interpreters go with the first one because we're a little bit more comfortable with that concept. If we go with the second rendering of this in a literal sense, it's like Eve is saying that Cain is some kind of divinity. But but either way, it seems to suggest that there's something significant about her son, 
came. Which, which that makes sense because God did promise her in chapter three that it would be her offspring that would eventually fix the issues that even Cain or even Adam had caused in the first place. So really what's happening here is Eve is seeing Cain as a miracle baby. It reads actually really, it mirrors the Mary story in the gospel. Now, this is the fun, this is, this is funny. So it's like the, I have given birth to a man, like, thank you, God, like, this is amazing. And then it's like, and she gave birth to Abel too. Right, this is like second child, third child syndrome here. It's like, yes, my firstborn, like a million pictures and all this. And then the second, there's like one photo and you really had to look for it. It's funny, isn't it? God's given me a man. Really weird that he, she's calling her baby a man. And then, oh, he also gave me a second son. Let's move on. It says, now Abel kept flocks. This is verse two. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor at all. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. I see downcast faces. They're looking at me right now. So Abel, so far in this story, is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. Interestingly enough, he's actually a fruit farmer. Lots of angry fruit farmers in our area. I'd make fun of Tanchuk, but he's not here. He's on the fruit farm. But anyway. And they both bring this offering to God, but yet the text doesn't tell us why. And Leviticus hasn't happened. So this is strange. You should read this as a little odd. So why does God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Remember, we can't use Leviticus to answer that question. It doesn't exist. And is it possible that like I hinted at a little bit last week, that there might be more going on than the Genesis narrative itself. Like like maybe there are more people present in the world and those people who are outside of the garden, because we're given the garden story to start our text, where Adam and Eve were forced to go. There's something, we're not told about this outside of the garden, we're just told about the garden and then they're removed from the garden and they're sent out. Could there be people? Could they already be practicing sacrifices? Maybe, I don't know, like the text doesn't actually tell us that. So we're kind of reading behind the lines there, aren't we? Well, there's there's four theories. I'm going to give them to you very quickly uh, of why God rejects Cain and accepts Abel's offering. The first is God wants blood. Now, how many of you automatically go to like nothing but the blood, right? Like the hymn. Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right, sing with me now. (laughs) Right? So right away, we're sitting in our comfy seats and we're like, yes, it's all about the blood. Okay, sure. But this is the most widely rejected theory in scholarship. The most widely rejected theory is that it's all about the blood. You see... 
it, that, that's really simple to kind of look at because if we do move into Levitical law and things like that, God doesn't just solely receive blood offerings. He also receives grain offerings and fruit offerings. And so it's, if it's simply the blood that fixes everything, then why would there be other avenues to do the same thing? Hmm. Is it possible that, like I said last week, there's more going on in this Genesis narrative? The second option is this. God wants first fruits and firstborn. This is exactly what we preach when we want your money. Right? First fruits, firstborn. This makes a ton of sense. That's it. It's about the blood and it's about first fruits and firstborns. If you can figure all that out, then you're going to be right with God. And this kind of makes sense. Abel gave his best and Cain didn't. But this theory is also not favored within scholarship by the conservative or liberal sides of things. And then there's option three. Now we're kind of getting somewhere here that God is actually looking for a pure heart. That it actually has nothing to do or very little to do with the actual sacrifice in which he has not even actually implemented yet. Right? But that he's looking at the person's heart. Now, this is actually the option that is most agreed upon. That what's happening in this story is that God knew each of their hearts that the offerings themselves really are just a side note. Instead, it's more about their motive of why they're offering them in the first place. Now, doesn't that begin to line up with the grander narrative of Scripture a little bit better? We're not writing off blood. I'll explain that at the end. Don't get all worked up. Type your email from your smartphone. We're going to be good. We're going to get there. But the heart seems to matter to God, doesn't it? Could Cain have been using his offering as a religious manipulation? Something I got to do because that's what's going to make me right with God? And Abel was just like simply doing it out of love for God? Not as an obligation? Option four, God wants our gratitude for grace, not religious manipulation. I really think that those two theories kind of go hand in hand, that they kind of explain uh, one another. So I wouldn't say an option three and an option four. I would just say that's an expansion on option three. Overall, we really, the text itself doesn't actually tell us. But what's interesting to me is this, folks, the result. So whatever is happening in this text, the interesting piece is actually the result of what happens. Cain, for some reason, gets really angry, which makes sense if his motive was religion rather than relationship. Because let's face it, religion historically has proven to do nothing but create anger. Just look at history. And so religious people tend to be very angry people. And so could that be what's happening in this text? Let's, let's go on. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, so this is that conversation. God's going to give Cain, he's having a conversation like, hey, what's the problem? Why'd you storm off to your room, Cain? Right? 
And he begins to give some fatherly advice to Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Now listen to what he says though. So sin, if you're, if you're doing what isn't right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But listen, but, this is a big but in the Bible, right? But you must rule over it. Oh my goodness, like they don't even have the Holy Spirit living in them at this point. And God's advice is, is that you can, Cain, actually get a hold of your sin and begin to rule over it if you learn to do what's right. Folks, this is amazing advice. It's advice that I'd recommend for our own lives. God says if you do what is right, you will be accepted. But if you choose to do what is wrong, sin is the result, and you will end up angry, frustrated. This is amazing advice to fallen humanity. If we learn to do what's right, everything will be fine. But if we keep insisting on doing what we want, it might not be. But you can actually rule over it. Do you see the freedom in that statement? Do you see the options, the choice that's being given to all of humanity in Genesis chapter 4 after the fall? God is giving Cain folks an important lesson about self-awareness. And I think if most counselors were to come in and really analyze the Christian community today, one of the biggest things that we struggle with is self-awareness. And if we struggle with self-awareness, we're going to struggle with reading the scriptures because we're not even self-aware of our own presuppositions and we're reading our own stuff into the text. And then we get really angry because we're being really religious. And so then we start to fight about our rendering of that text. And we just live as angry religious people here in Simcoe. Hmm. Cain chooses to let sin rule over him. And his anger turns into jealousy, rage, and violence. Because that's exactly what sin does keeps us angry. Now, Genesis 4, 8 to 12. Now, Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We're not really given much about their conversation or what's even happening here. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Doesn't this look like something we just read? Genesis chapter 3, right? Where, Where are you guys? Like, God doesn't know, right? And so now, where's your brother Abel? Oh, he, he's not aware, right? The creator of the heavens and earth has no idea. <laughs> Typical human response, I don't know. Right? Am I my brother's keeper? The, the actual answer to that is yes. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield, your cro- yield its crops for you. You will be res- a restless wanderer on earth. Now the narrative goes on and God sends Cain, guess what way? 
Everybody say it with me. What direction does he send him? East. Remember that motif. East is away from God. West is toward God. You'll see that constantly throughout the Old Testament. So what's going on here? Well, there's a few things. First, we're seeing that sin leads to death again. It's a repeat of the Genesis story in a lot of ways, the Genesis chapter 3 story. We're seeing the results that sin always leads to death, never leads to life. Just as God said that it would, Cain let his sin overtake him and things don't go well. But there's something else going on here, folks. And it's directly linked to this concept of God accommodating humanity. I want to jump over into other areas of the Old Testament. So we're going to look specifically at some scriptures of people who were directly close to God. So Isaiah is a good guy to pick. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Listen to what Isaiah says. This is still the Old Testament. The sacrificial law is still in place. That's how you go about living your faith. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. Listen, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. Psalms. King David, Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. I thought it was all about sacrifice. I thought it was all about the blood. Why is David saying this? Why is Isaiah say, why is God saying this through Isaiah? So David says, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Listen to what David says. My sacrifice, O God is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Folks, God never intended for humans to become set on religion as a way to be in a relationship with him. And those who are closest to him in these texts already realize this, even though the system is in place. He wanted our hearts to be right with him. Yet he accommodates our human need to earn his approval. God accommodates our religious practices, but hopes that we'll choose the path of righteousness, the path that is his will for us. This is exactly why Jesus came, to solve the problem that Cain experienced. You see, a broken, sin-filled human being will always struggle to do what is right, right? It doesn't take much to look around the world to just see how things are, are so messed up and how angry humanity is, especially Christians. But Jesus tells us why he came and why he had to die. So now let's get back into the blood for a second here. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus is going to, like, why not just go to the source, ask Jesus, why did you come? And we're going to practice this in a few minutes uh, with Tamil. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But wait a minute, didn't I say that God never wanted us to shed blood in the first place? That it was an accommodation? Yes, Jesus, in order to end the accommodation, shed his blood. 
So God inserts himself into the accommodation. He enters the sacrificial system to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It doesn't mean it's what God wanted. It's what God needed to happen to get us to move past it. Do you see it? Just because it happens that way doesn't mean that's actually what God wanted. He enters the plan of accommodation itself and forgives us through his sacrifice and he ends religion by bringing in grace. That's what's happening here. The new covenant literally captures the beauty of the garden. This is what Cain didn't understand. He didn't need to produce the best religious sacrifice. All he had to do was what was right with God, and God would have been pleased with him. Religion is what chapter 4 of Genesis is all about. This is the origin, the beginning of religion. And religion, folks, is the result of two false beliefs. We act religious when we believe that God is distant and when we function or live in a way that makes it up to us to bridge the gap between us and God. So I need to bring this sacrifice in order to be made right with God. So it's actually on me. God's distant. I'll bring this to fix the distance. That is where religion comes from. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, addresses both of these false beliefs, and he tells us how to do it, and it's by doing what is right. Listen very quickly. I'm running out of time. When the jailer uh, in Acts chapter 16 asks the apostles, how do I get saved? Fair question, right? It says this in Acts 16, verse 30 to 31. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, What must I do to be saved? Folks, you need to hear this. They replied. So here's the apostles. This isn't Pastor Jeff. This is is the apostles. Okay? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Oh, okay. Jesus says to believe in him. There's no gap. We don't have to earn God's love. We receive it by believing. Okay, let's jump over to to John. John chapter 6, verse 28 to 29. Then they ask him, so rather than let's go to the apostles, let's just ask Jesus. Right? So they ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works that God requires? They don't understand salvation at this point. So what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. He doesn't go into turn your Bibles to Leviticus and let's start to talk about that. What does he say? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Cain and Abel thought that through offering religious sacrifice, they could gain God's approval and love. Yet, if we look at the conversation between God and Cain, God actually says what he requires is a heart that wants to do what's right. Yet we 
see humanity move in the opposite direction, eastwardly. We continue to believe the lie that somehow we have to earn our way to God's love. And Jesus flipped this lie upside down by calling us to simply but believe, by entering the process of accommodation and ending it. There's no religious system to follow, only trusting Jesus. So when you truly believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, you can't help but be compelled to want to know more about him, to get to know him, and to learn to live the life that he calls us to. It's something that just happens when you truly believe. But is speaking something believing something? That's interesting. Your life shows what you truly believe. All we have to do is believe and we're made right with the creator of all things. The way to reverse the results of Genesis chapter three is to place our trust in Jesus. This is the call that we have, folks, from Scripture. Do you live life like you believe that God is with us, or do you live life like he's distant? Do you live life like he's present and active with you right now in this moment? Think about some of the things we do in our lives. Would we really do that if Jesus was standing with us? If the answer is yes, well, that's interesting, but like... We often act like God is distant. That's religion. And then we try to earn his love from the distance. That's not how the text reads at all. He's present. He's active and he's part of our lives and his spirit lives in us when we believe. All of the Bible is summarized by this one concept. Believe and be transformed by that belief. That's how Jesus solves the problem. The blood was actually just a human accommodation. It's not what God wanted. What God has always wanted is us to learn through him how to do what's 